So you have two email addresses? Um, Mother Agnes is on uh, Hotmail and Mother Margaret is on Hotmail as well. And I just use the, the convent oh, one. Oh, I see. Uh, Carmel. Fa, fa, Fayum Carmel. I'd like to introduce you to four women. I spent my years in Mataria putting cement on, on walls. That's walls. Margaret Therese. And uh, up on the ladder, an awful lot of my time. Sister Margaret Therese. Whitewashing walls. She's 83. <laughs> Everything on the cheap. You know, it wouldn't cost much. <laughs> That's Sister Agnes. She's from Lockray, County Galway. She's also in her 80s. And do you know the name of those birds under there? They're oh, beautiful. they're the um, ibis, a sacred bird. Nobody would uh, kill an ibis. It goes back to the time of pharaohs. This is Sister Veronica, the, uh, almost 80. And did marvellous. This might be Mother Agnes calling. Yeah. She's just taken the tiniest blue mobile phone out of her habit pocket. We, we knew some, huh? We knew some, knew some lamb and now. Yourself, do you remember what you were wearing? What are the questions? <laughs> Sister Martina, the Joker. She's in her early eighties. Many years ago, when I was taking the nuns' photos, she was the one who broke a branch off a bush stuck it up behind Sister Margaret's head. The Carmelite convent where the nuns live is in Egypt in an oasis called Fayum, about a two-hour drive southwest of Cairo. It's a lush rural area, watered by the Nile. The convent is on the edge of the desert, about 20 minutes from the main town, which has around a million people. live in the convent. Four of them are elderly Irish. It used to be a cattle farm and the sisters converted the buildings and outhouses into a chapel and retreat house. Well, it was filled with cows. It was full of cows. Lots of dung. That's why the trees have grown so enormous. All right. Sister Veronica is from Lusk in North County, Dublin. I mean, we have about 35 or 37 acres 
maybe 30 of those would be under uh, trees, mango and olive trees. And then small area under um, date palms. Zaid Yashafir. Zaid. The soil is gets so clammy when it has water in it that if you were to walk into it, you just, you'd leave your shoe behind, you know, incredible. Oh, I know it by experience. It looks fine, you begin to walk, and then you suddenly find they're beginning to have water here, and mm. no way can you get across, it just floods everything. And it's even more risky now because it's watered more often than in the old days. We've about 15 different varieties of mango, at least 15. Some of them are, are magnificent. We don't harvest them ourselves. We sell our garden, if you like, to a man who's used to doing that. He has his workers and he comes along and gives offers his price in the month of April, May, when he sees he could, they have a, an eye to the tree, you know, and he could go, walks all around it and he'll offer you a, a price. Alkanese. Ah, you had 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 even when the Irish nuns are on their own, they speak French to each other. There's a reason for that, which I'll tell you about later. The nuns go into town once a week to buy provisions, go to the bank and get money for the farm. What we get for the farm we put in and then we keep drawing it out. Uh, what the man said one time, I never saw people, uh, they usually put money into the bank but you're always taking it out. <laughs> That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the sweeter wine, isn't this it? This is a sweeter wine now. Is it first but class? It's first class. Oh, first class. First class. And somebody told us that if you were in France and you had wine that was hand-pressed, you could ask any price for it. They used to make it before, even before we came. We had a, a sister from Alsace. I'm going to say an Alsatian. <laughs> She used to make it, she showed me, I was interested in, in making it. Nobody could drink it. She, she believed in not putting any sugar into it at all, you see. And eventually, to help us to drink it, she used to put a cognac into it. You know? <laughs> but I was interested in the wine, and I kept on trying to make it. It's really, really making it for mass, to have mass wine. But the priest and the Egyptians don't like a dry wine. They want it sweet. Just last week now, I sell, sold a, a case and then we use it ourselves and we give presents of it and I laugh at myself because my name is, our family name is Cusack. Uh, my eldest brother was very keen to find out where this, these Cusacks came from, you see. And he ended up anyway in the south of France and there's a village there called Cusack. 
it's a vine growing place and it's a wine making place so he said oh this is where we got it <laughs> it's in the blood <laughs> it's in the blood so this is the way up that's very modern huh? this, this is very modern yeah it's great <laughs> We're on our way into the convent. You have two floors. Yeah, that's right. That's right. After that. From inside the lift, we can hear somebody playing the piano on the first floor. Margaret plays the organ during Mass and Vespers. They didn't realize you're coming in. There's somebody practicing music. And she also gives music lessons to the younger sisters in the evenings. This is a place for music as well. We have the two apostles. See how slow that is now. There you have, I see 29 spans. The technology room is on the second floor. This has the computer for the internet, the photocopier and a scanner. The first computer we got was a, was a gift from, there were Americans in Imadi. And they had been coming here on retreats actually. It was um, a Mac, which is different. I had to kind of learn this one afterwards. But it served me a lot because at the time I was doing the accounts for the uh, community. And it was a marvellous help. The additioning and everything just done. <laughs> the nuns use email to keep in touch with family and friends, as well as other Carmelite convents. If I wanted to, to write a letter now, or two letters, I'd need about three quarters of an hour probably to read down what I received and then I get three quarters of an hour, one hour would be the, just once a week for me. I used to make Christmas cards with uh, photos because there was a time when you couldn't buy a Christmas card in, in, uh, in Egypt and we were making nice little cribs. I said it wouldn't be nice to photograph these and make a card of them. and So uh, we did. We sent them to you know, the Basilica in Heliopolis. You have some photographs online there. I have. Uh, we got them recently. I'll to see what's it on now. Um, oh, here I'll get it in uh, my photos. From the Holy Land, one of the... His sister has a lot... Maybe I have to do two, two clicks here. in Fayoum is a work in progress. The Irish nuns moved here in 1995 from another convent in Cairo. It was the third major shift in their lives of nuns. The first, obviously, was the day each of them joined. day? I do. We, we went down to Noros, my parents and my brother, and they gave us a meal in the parlour, and uh, they, they were nice cakes, and my father said, I like the cakes. He said, you take them now plenty because you'll never see them again. So then I was afraid the time was coming to say goodbye, and I couldn't say goodbye, so I got up and dashed to the door to go in. But my father caught me like that, said, you don't go like that. <laughs> and then I had to embrace them and go in. I asked to enter immediately. I finished leaving cert. On the desk where I finished my papers, I wrote the letter. And in the meantime, anyway, at one stage, I felt as if I had no vocation whatsoever. 
I got a call to teacher training, so I'll do the call to training and that's it. And at the same time, I had a rendezvous meeting with sisters in Lockery. So I said, what'll I do? Oh, there's only one thing. I go and tell them I'm the vocation. So I went. And as soon as I got inside the door, I felt this is where God wants me to be. So instead of telling my no vocation, I just carried oh, on. Oh, it took uh, it, was a, it was a battle. It was a hard fight. <laughs> In what sense? In the sense that um, I didn't want to. Really? I didn't want to. And yet when I was growing up, I didn't want anything else. But I left, I did my leaving cert. I was just over 17 and I went home and announced that I wanted to be a nun and a Carmelite. And my father wouldn't hear of it. Too young, no question. Anyway, I got into, uh, into this uh, teaching course, three-year course. And of course, uh, we had our dances there and we had our, you know, and uh, by the time the three years were nearly up, I said, it was all imagination. I was only, uh, I was only a kid when I was thinking of these things. And how do I know? What is it to, to, to love God and what to love somebody else? And it was all imagination. So I set off about getting a job and I got this place down in Kildare. And of course, down there, I met somebody <laughs> and fell in love. Wow. Ah. And I used to, I got the stage of bringing him home. And, um, oh, we were very close friends all together. And then something began to nag at me. Um, and I wondered. And I began, when I was down in Kildare, I was on the top of the world, everything was fine. And when I came back, was at home for a weekend. Everything went flat, and um, things didn't go at all. And I wouldn't go with the family. They were all golfer mad. You used to go golfing on a Saturday and Sunday. Wouldn't go golfing without walking on my own. And uh, I wasn't wasn't with it at all. So of course my mother saw that, and she said, "Look, go down to Rossgrey and, and uh, talk to to Piers about it." So I went down. Who's Pierce? Pierce is my brother. So I drove down anyway and uh, spent the day with my brother. And um, and something he said, I, now I couldn't tell you what it is to this day, don't know what he said, but it came like a thunderbolt to my head. I said, you just want to do your own thing and you know right well that God wants something else. And I went into a flood of tears. There was a little one beside me. She looked up and she said, no, what's wrong with you? And I had to get into my car and drive home that night. It was winter. Drive home as far as Kildare on my own. And it was... It was grim. What brought the tears? That I had to go back and, and give up my boyfriend. The difficult thing was to tell Mommy. I just didn't know how I could tell her, how could, what I could say. Anyway, I wrote to Lochry and they answered me. And I left the letter hanging around and she found it. How did she react? She said, is that letter for you? I said, it is. And she didn't say no, she didn't say anything, she accepted. And then Daddy, God rest his soul, I told him, or she told him, I can't remember that. Anyway, he said, well, you have cousins in different orders, 
some Lord Mercy and the other sisters of charity. And why, why wouldn't you go with them? I, I don't know what I answered, but like, I mean, I had no doubt at all but, uh, that I want to be a Carmelite, that that's what God wanted me. And I suppose that's what I answered, like, in some, some way or another. Mm. One day I was cycling along and there was a man in front of me on a bike and I said, imagine I'll never see a man again. <laughs> and also I thought that uh, we they, they said in the, the thing the rule that you slept on a straw bed you see so I had visions of this little room with a lump of straw in the corner <laughs> when I was in the secondary I can't remember what year we were asked to do um, a devoir as you call it um, an essay uh, what we would do later on in life so I had said that I want to be a nun and I would go to Egypt and when I'd be 60, I would retire and <laughs> pray. What did you pack in your suitcase the day you entered? There was a whole list. Right. Dressing gown. Yes. Night clothes. Night what else? All your underwear. Your underwear. Yeah. Yes. And there was a list? A few pairs of shoes. What type of shoes? Black shoes, of course. Low heels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but they didn't say about heels. <laughs> Was there a special shop? Did you have to go to the yes, special yes, shop yes, in yeah. Dublin? Garvin's, it was next to Pim's in Georgia Street. And they provided all the, the a black dress and a cape and a black bonnet and everything that you needed for All her. the underwear. All the underwear and the aprons. <laughs> and that was a must. You had to have all that. Yeah. Were you allowed to bring a possession from home that meant something? No, not really. Really? No. no. Couldn't have a photo in your room uh, of the family, right? Your name was taken away, not even your clothes. Immediately, <laughs> <laughs> immediately, your name was changed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, we kept our main name for six months. And was there one thing in particular that you that was hard to leave behind? Oh, I, my bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your bike. What was it like? Oh, it's a rally. Oh, and it was really a good one. I was so proud of it. I went everywhere on it. I lived on it. I went up steep hills and flew down like that. And uh, you could, but I never broke my neck. With <laughs> but I loved it so, so much so that a Franciscan priest who knew me in Waterford, he said, is the bicycle entering with you? <laughs> At that time, it couldn't. I, I left it with great regret. What, you, what were you wearing when you entered? Oh, I remember very well. Because I didn't bring my best coat, I want my sister wanted it. <laughs> and all the things they liked, I wore the things they weren't interested in. I wore a grey skirt and a grey and a grey twin set. It was cold. Well, I don't know whether you know a jigger. It was it was the the whole the it was one of these short um, coats, you know. Uh, uh, it was the real the style at the time, and uh, I had a red one, and I had a red striped uh, dress, and I had red sandals, key sandals, and I said neither of my sisters are going to wear any of that rig out, so I think that's what I'll wear down to Lockery, and I leave anything else that they might wear, you see. So when they saw me coming in, this, <laughs> this, oh, she won't stay two days, this one. <laughs> 
when the two colored uh, mm. brown and um, mm. and cream shoes yeah. came out mm. I had a pair I thought they were wonderful and all the girls in school were admiring them and they said to the teacher look mother look at the shoes she has <laughs> Agnes didn't know it when she was a schoolgirl, but her essay about ending up as a nun in Egypt was about to come true. And what was it like coming into the airport on your first day? Well, it was such a big experience, I was delighted. <laughs> but uh, we had a long wait, and there was... You know, a man dressed up in um, pharaonic clothes, walking up and down, and I was terrified in my life of him. We were sitting on a seat waiting for someone to come and fetch us, and he was walking up and down looking at us, and I was terrified of him. <laughs> but I'm sure the poor man <laughs> was harmless. So when they came, we were very pleased. All of the nuns eventually ended up in a place called Matareya, which is just outside the city of Cairo. They brought a minibus for us and we were coming along and the police said, I'm glad you're coming in the night time because if you saw it in the daytime, <laughs> you would get a shock. <laughs> the convent is beside a tree which, according to biblical lore, was the place where the Holy Family rested on their flight into Egypt. That story may have been charming, but for young Irish nuns, the climate was far from it. I remember the first morning at Mass, all the windows were closed were covered with, with curtains, heavy curtains inside, in our choir and the division between the choir and the chapel was also closed and at the end of the Mass Mother Joseph fainted because there was no air and it was very hot we arrived here on the 1st of October it was, for us, I mean it was very hot the second day Mother Veronica the same thing happened to her but thanks be to God I didn't The nuns lived in Egypt at a time of major political upheaval. Nasser had just installed a socialist regime and the government began confiscating lands and property from the upper classes. One group in particular which was targeted were the Coptic Christians, sometimes known as Greek Catholics. A lot of people of the Greek Catholics used to come to us in Matavia asking for prayers. And evidently it was seen or watched one night around half eleven, the police came and said that the house was in danger and they would, the sisters would all have to go out and they'd put the seal on it. And what they wanted, it seems, was to see, they thought that the Greek people coming were leaving their jewels and money with us, but they weren't actually. So um, Mother Joseph was in charge at the time and she was well able to, she was a great character, she was well able to manage. So she said, you don't come in the middle of the night to get sisters out. Wait till the morning. And they said it was urgent, so she telephoned the nunciature and the secretary came over as quickly as he could and the priest friend that they had uh, in Heliopolis, he came over also. So they reasoned with them that the house would hardly fall down before the morning. So they, they went off 
And the little money that Mother Joseph had, she had it in a cardboard box <laughs> under the bed with nothing in the bank. You couldn't at that time. So she put it, wrapped it up in newspaper and gave it to the uh, priest. And he put it under his arm as if it was his newspaper. And he went off with it. So the next morning, the bishop came and the secretary from the nuncio came back again. And the police said, oh, we're very sorry, we made a mistake, but the house is in another street. The nuns lived in closed lives in a country where the culture was alien to them. But not only that, the culture within their own walls was also only slightly more familiar. The convent was founded by French nuns who fled Jerusalem at the end of the Second World War, and the spoken language was French. This made communication difficult. didn't know what they were saying. And one fine day I decided I was going to bring my dictionary. Both had brought English French dictionaries with us and had brought out the, the dictionary. While they could not get over it. They, they see they didn't it didn't enter their heads just, just how how frustrating it is like to be there and not not be able to follow. It released my frustration and at the same time I got a few words, you know. And as I said, all these years later oui. The Irish nuns speak French together. On the down, nous sommes là aussi. Even when they're alone. Oui. Vous êtes derrière, peut-être. Oui. Alors nous sommes ici en avant. Nous venons d'arriver. The Carmelites are an enclosed order. When the nuns joined, they understood their relations with their families would change forever. In Margaret's case, it hit her father most hard. Two months after I entered, my father got pneumonia. And at that time there wasn't penicillin and all that, and it was a miracle that he got out of it. But my mother said he went down after your entrance. He missed, you know, that was, it was hard on it, really. Remarkably, Margaret's mother did make it to Egypt. But having travelled all those hundreds of miles from Waterford to Cairo, she wasn't allowed closer than a few feet. And then when they came to see you, you were behind the grill. You could never embrace them or anything. But all of this was about to change. Nineteen seventy brought the second major event in the nuns' religious lives. After Vatican II, the order decided that the nuns should no longer be totally enclosed. They had been in Cairo between five and eleven years and had never even seen the pyramids. And after 17 years away, Agnes was allowed to travel home to Loch Ray. When I got near home, there was a whole range of cars to, out to meet me. And there were bonfires, like for a wedding. There were about three or four of them. And all the neighbours were out. And all of them were 17 years older than when I'd seen them before. And they all expected me to know them. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing, it was, it was.
It was decided that the nuns should interact more with the local community, and they wanted their independence. So they bought a car, and Veronica was picked as the designated driver. But Cairo traffic is not for the faint-hearted, especially not for a learner. However, there was one day of the week when it was relatively safe to venture out, the Islamic Day of Prayer. She used to get up at six o'clock in the morning on a Friday and go out. And every day she didn't go a bit further. And then there was a man from Mataria, a friend who used to come with us. And he would drive part and she would drive part of the way. And by degrees she got into it and got very, very good at it. And then there was a third major shift in the nuns' lives in Egypt. Gradually, it was becoming clear that the building in Matareya was no longer suitable as a convent. We were up a, a narrow street, very narrow actually, when we came. It was only the, the, the width of, you know, and it was a dust, a dust track. And it became worse as time went on because the houses were building up all around us and there were mosques all around. Matareya was grim, you know, it was very poor. The house like, was very old and no matter what you did with it, it, it couldn't improve it. And then in 1992 there was the earthquake and it did a good lot of damage because the cracks everywhere, a bit of the ceiling fell down over the stairs. So we decided at that time that perhaps we, we should try and move. We were dreaming of building a monastery out in the desert. But like you have to be practical, how would we live? And on what would we live out in the desert? So that hadn't come into it. For Margaret, she's an adventurer, a lover of maps, and she also adores the desert. This was to be an exciting time. I was 30 years there and I had never been outside. I'd never seen what the countryside was like or what the desert was like. I was often wishing I could. <laughs> you wouldn't be interested in seeing our, our, our cattle, our, our uh, graveyard. I would. Come yeah, did, yeah. Great. It's being fixed up at the moment. When Fayoum was chosen as a new home, the nuns had a decision to make. The old convent in Matareya had a small graveyard for deceased members of the community. The surviving nuns had to decide if they should take their late sisters with them or leave them behind. Two died in a fortnight. Very difficult mm. yeah, for us. Yeah. And they're here with you now in the... Yeah. That's right, yes. Yeah. 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 We had a, a cavo, a nice place, under the altar in the church in Mataria, and so it had to be emptied in Mataria. Mm-hmm. It was dreadful. You're removing the remains? Yes. 
what we decided to do was we got somebody to help us to change all the bodies that remained and put them into three wooden boxes. And we put the three wooden boxes into the car. We said nothing to nobody. And then they were put on a lorry coming, covered over. And, um, you know, you're always stopped at the checkpoint. I was, I was in the lorry. Were you in the lorry? <laughs> but tell us the rest of it. <laughs> Two of us used to come every week on a, on a Friday when this uh, gentleman lent us his... Uh, a covered-in lorry. You wouldn't call it a lorry, like a, almost pick up, a... Like a pick-up truck. Kind of a pick-up, yeah. that's right, and covered in. But um, we had all these uh, behind us, and two of us were sitting up, and then the driver in the, the front. And we came to the, the checkpoint, and um, we just sat there, you know, and wondered. And I, we said, they never actually stopped at our check, but, you know, if they only knew they what, was, what was going through. Yeah. <laughs> and you didn't tell the driver either? No. Oh, no, the driver didn't know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And when they arrived here, we didn't tell the men either, because that wouldn't do. So we had to put them, in, the place wasn't ready for them. We put them in the garage in one side, and we, were, we told them nobody was to touch that, that side of the garage mm-hmm. for a mm-hmm. long time. And well, how long do they stay there for? Mm-hmm. Oh, they were a few months. Oh, this is lovely down here. It, it is how, see how this is. Would, would you call this a mausoleum or? This is where, this way you put the coffin As you see, we get a plaque of marble and put the person's name and the, the, the date of birth and the date of death. They're all the people. I knew, I knew all those now. Can you read some of the names? Yeah, Marie de Jesus Crucifier. She's from Syria, Mother Mary of Jesus Crucified. How do you pronounce that name? Crisetti. It's Roma. So Marie del Macle Concepcion, she's from, she was from Brazil. She went to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage and she decided she would enter in Jerusalem and then she came here and Sir Josephine of the child Jesus she is from Alsace and uh, when she was born Alsace belonged to Germany so she didn't speak French uh, Sir Joseph de l'Enfant Jésus she is a uh, Maronite and she was born her family were from Tarsus for St Paul was from Sir Lulu Iskander, she's from Tanta, and as you see, she died in '93. She, there's a tremendous story about her. She didn't. She wanted. She was. She's uh, Egyptian. She's Egyptian. She was Orthodox. She became Catholic, and then she decided she wanted to enter with the Carmelites. And when she announced it at home, there was war, and they kept her at home. Never got outside the door until she was 21. And for her birthday, they were making a nice new dress for her. And uh, they let her go out to try on the dress. And they gave her the money for the dress. Instead of <laughs> going to the dressmaker, she went to the priest who knew her. And she told him, and he said, he looked at his watch and he says, now you've just come time to catch the train, if you wish. So she went off to catch the train. And she had to pass in, by the building where the father worked. And she bent down her head under the window so he wouldn't see her. <laughs> and she entered. And then, then, uh, when they found she was gone, they sent out the police looking for her in all the convents in Cairo. She used to write to the family, they would send the letters to France, and the letters came from France. After the war, they decided to let them know that she'd been here all the time. And they were very vexed, because they were very worried about her in the war. And the sister refused to speak to her. There's a lot of history there, isn't there? Yes, isn't there? Many, many yes, years. Yes, 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 yes.
like the earliest, yes, in 1916. 1916. Mit Kitty came here in 1914, and they left three of the sisters yeah. here. But no, normally, like, they should not have died, you know? It's probably uh, the, uh, the climate here in the summer is very heavy, because at that time, there was no such thing as adapting the habit to the climate. So they wear the wool leg habit in the middle of the summer with long sleeves and they wore woolen uh, underclothes and changed them if they were fortunate once a fortnight. So it's impossible, impossible to survive. When did you have extraordinary health? Tell me about the habits that you were wearing. Oh. This we adapted after a while. So it's a beige colour. It's beige colour, which and you can see short sleeves. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the fabric? Uh, just local material. I don't know the name, but local material. We just get, you know, fairly light. It looks nice and, yeah, and it light is. for the. It is. That's the, the idea. So that's it. Lovely to have all the nuns who came to Egypt, all of us together. You know. The main religion in Egypt is Islam, and Christians, both Orthodox and Catholic, make up between 10 and 15% of the population. How are the, um, how are the Christians getting on here? I noticed that uh, quite a few of them were leaving. There seemed to be an awful lot of people Young trying to get away. Young people, if they can get out, they will. But uh, they don't always do that, uh, that well. I mean, they, they, in the, at the end of the day, you feel they'd be better off to stay at home but they find it hard to... You, university students, sometimes you'll get into a taxi, maybe you've not seen that yourself, and it's a doctor who's driving the... because uh, he can't get work. Groups of Christians often rent out space in the convent on special feasts such as Holy Days and Easter. Every day there would be people coming for looking for prayers. They would either give you a donation of money or groceries. We never had to buy cheese or anything like that. There was an old sister and she was in the kitchen and the coffee was gone down to nothing. She put a little empty bag in front of the statue of St. Joseph in the kitchen and she said, St. Joseph, it, also, it always came. Another thing was, when we hadn't any coffee one night, this man came to the turn. Uh, there was a turn, was a turn around like that. You didn't see the person, but you put in your stuff, revolved. And he said, I'm bringing you this coffee and I intend to bring it to you in future every month. And now that's years ago, and he still sends it to us. In really? Fayou. He's never, never missed out. What, makes the, what made the people do this? They have great faith in prayer. They have great faith in prayer. And they found like we were people that we didn't have a school or active thing, so that we were there for praying. So they, have, they had a better idea of us than we would have of ourselves. <laughs> you know? so, and they're very generous. We found the Egyptians very generous, really. In the beginning of the uh, month, we had nothing in the bank. You wonder where you were going to get the money for the month. And the only one time that I ever prayed for money was, we were coming to the, about the 27th of the month and practically nothing came in. So that day I prayed for some money and it all came in in the three days that were therefore left. Oh, did? Yeah, definitely. So you'd have great confidence in prayer ourselves and within the Lord, uh, his goodness to us, you know. <laughs> And you can see the mosque behind. That was being built when we came. It was being built the same time as our, we were building ours. Yeah. And one day they didn't have cement and they asked us for it. And another day we didn't have bricks and we asked them for it. It was nice. Yeah. There we go. There he goes now. That's his prayer time. 
God is the great, God is the only one. And Muhammad. Personally, I don't have much contact with the outside here. I don't know many of us would know. And actually, the people in the town of Fayum itself are very nice, very friendly. They appreciate very much our way of life. Mm-hmm. God worked so many miracles to bring us here. He's not going to let us down at this point. Mm-hmm. That's what we feel. <laughs> and in the meantime, you still you have your plans. You have yeah, because you have to keep on um, moving, you know, and uh, improving the place and all that. So that's what we're at. <laughs> <laughs> it took time, but I suppose. <laughs> Well, I'm going to go to the next one. 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 I'm going to go to the next